My grandmother, I call her Nanny, uh, is one of those special people in my life. And when I was a kid, I would oftentimes spend the night with her on Friday nights. And one thing that I loved about spending the night with Nanny is that she would let me pick out where we would go eat on Friday nights. And uh, she would not argue. And a lot of times she would ask me, hey, Scotty, where do you want to go eat? And I would say, Nanny, I want to go to Dunkin' Donut for dinner. And she would just smile back and say, okay, let's go to Dunkin' Donut. And we would go to Dunkin' Donut and we would eat a couple of donuts. And then um, after that, she would say, well, you know what? We need dessert as well. And uh, we would go to down the street to Baskin Robin and and uh, get a dessert. And I know that today Dunkin' Donut and Baskin Robin sometimes are in the same building. That's really awesome. We wouldn't have had to uh, to go to two different places. But I want to tell you that was an awesome experience for me as a young boy. I knew that my grandmother loved me, uh, and and she still loves me in that same way. When we go visit her, she sends me home with a lot of treats. And uh, she actually turns 85 years old next Sunday, and so we're rejoicing. But she loved me, um, and I knew that, and I loved her back. But a lot of times I would use her love for me to my advantage. I knew that I could get things out of her uh, because of her great love for me. And one evening, uh, she was making a birthday cake for someone, and and uh, she let me lick the bowl of icing, and it was really good icing. And, and so I said, hey, Nanny, I'd like a bowl of that icing just to eat for myself. And before I knew it, she had whipped it up, and, and, and she uh, put a spoon in it. And I sat there for the next few minutes and, and tried to eat all of that uh, icing. And I just want you to know I learned something that night. I learned that... Sometimes working things to your advantage is really not working them to your advantage, okay? Uh, I, I thought that I was, uh, you know, getting something good, and, and really, in fact, I was uh, getting something very bad. It produced sickness, and it actually produced a nightmare that night. I actually had a dream that all of the ground around my house was covered in that frosting, and I was crawling around like a dog eating that frosting up. And I want to tell you, that was one of the first dreams that I can ever remember. And to this day, I can vividly see it. And I really believe God was trying to teach me something, even as a young boy, um, about selfishness uh, and about the danger of selfishness. You know, being motivated selfishly can get us into trouble. We might think it's, it's really good to always get what we want, but as you heard from that story, it's not uh, the best thing in many cases. And I want to tell you that this attitude, this selfish attitude, was present at the church at Philippi. You remember those detractors um, that we talked about last week? Those detractors were in the church at Philippi. And Paul says that they preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Okay? So they were motivated out of selfishness. And what's interesting is many of these preachers were probably heavily influenced by Paul. They had probably experienced Paul's love in their life. 
But somewhere along the line, selfishness was motivating them. And so when Paul was in trouble, they used Paul's imprisonment to advance themselves. And they spoke slanderous words against the Apostle Paul in order to elevate themselves. You know what the scary thing is? Is that these individuals probably thought that they were in a righteous spot. That they were living out a, uh, a righteousness in the church. But they were not. And I want to tell you this, that selfishness causes spiritual blindness. It causes a lack of discernment. And it is the complete opposite of abounding love. We talked about abounding love last week. Selfishness is really the enemy of abounding love. And so Paul is writing the Philippians. There's a lot of confusion going on. There's some selfish brothers in their church. And he's trying to correct the selfishness. And he wants to teach them some more about that abounding love. And he's going to teach that abounding love through the life of Christ. And specifically through Christ's humility. So the title of the message this morning is Abounding Love, Following Christ's Humility. And my prayer is this morning is that we would first see the danger of selfishness. You know, we can have selfishness in our individual lives, in our marriage, in our family, and in the church. Wherever that selfishness is, it's dangerous. And I want you to see the danger of it. I want you to see what it can do to the church. And then... Finally, I want us to see what the conquering remedy is. Because there is a remedy uh, against selfishness. So let's read together. We're in Philippians chapter 2. We're going we're to read verses 3 through 11. That's a lot of text. Uh, but it will help us as we get prepared uh, to dig in this morning. <clears throat> so Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing... Out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should not only look out for his own interest, but look out for the interest of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man as in his external form, he humbled himself and became obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven And on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful passage of Scripture that is. Starting in verse 6, you can see that this is constructed a little bit differently in your Bible. It's it's written more like a poem or a song. And I want to tell you that uh, history tells us that, that this passage of Scripture was actually... A song of worship. It was a song of worship about the incarnation of Christ. The life and the death that Christ showed to us. It's a song about the incarnation. It's a song about the exaltation of Christ. 
And you see that right there at the end. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. It's, so it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And, and right before this, this beautiful worship song about Christ, Paul has some words of warning about selfishness. He says, do nothing. Okay? Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Your translation may say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or vain glory. Okay, but he's warning them to, to not be motivated by these two things. And so he says rivalry or conceit. And the first thing you need to know about that word rivalry or selfish ambition is that that is the internal part of selfishness. There, there's an internal and an external part to selfishness. But this, this idea of rivalry or selfish ambition, what it means is, is that you're always working out in your mind how to get the most advantage in a situation. And we do that as people. We're always looking for the most advantage in any and every situation. I want you to think about the, the last time that you split a meal with somebody. Or maybe you just split a dessert. Or maybe you divided up some tasks around the house. You know, what, what is that first thought process usually? Well, I know for me, sometimes I think, well, you know, I want the right piece of that steak that my wife and I are splitting. I want, the, I want, I want, this, I want all of this side, okay? We internally work out ways, uh, work out things to our own advantage. Or if you're... If you're uh, splitting a dessert, okay, what part of that dessert do you like the most? I want the part with the most chocolate. Sometimes when we, when we divide up work projects, sometimes it's a, it's a natural tendency in our mind to try to think of, of ways to do the least amount of work, okay? I, I employ 69 employees at, at my business and I know that many of them are always looking for the, the easiest job to do. But there are some that want the hardest job. They want the job that makes them shine, makes them look really awesome. So they might be formulating, what would make me look the best? What job could I take? And so that's the internal part, this idea of rivalry. It's this internal part of selfishness. But there's an external part. It's that vain conceit. Your translation may say vainglory or just conceit. But it, it really means that you need something externally. You formulate internally to receive something externally. So you manipulate situations. You internalize those situations to work the most advantage because you need something external. You need praise. You need glory. You need honor. A lot of times this idea of conceit goes hand in hand with greed. Okay? You want money. You want more money. And it's, it's a very negative way. Um, it's a very negative motivating factor. And so you see that, that Paul is addressing this because there are people in the church that are working out of this principle. This principle of selfishness. And in the book of Philippians, he addresses all kinds of things. He, he addresses disunity. He addresses a lack of love, a, a lack of joy. And, and you see that there is just a lack of the fruits of righteousness. We talked about the fruits of righteousness last week. But there's no wonder why there's a lack. Because 
If you're in a body of people where everyone is trying to work out things to their own advantage, it can be a problem. Okay? It can be a problem. And Paul knows if he doesn't address this, that this church could spin out of control. Last week we learned about love. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says that love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not conceited. So you see that selfishness and love are opposites. And when, when there is a, a person being motivated out of love and a person motivated out of selfishness, a lot of times those, those paths will collide. Selfishness is the root of all other sins. Listen to this verse, James 3.16. It says, For where envy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and evil of every kind. Selfishness is one of those root sins. Okay, We talk about abounding love. A person that has abounding love has a root system that is grounded in love. And everything they do is motivated from that root system. Same way with, this, with selfishness. If we're a selfish person, it's because we have a root system that is rooted in selfishness. Selfishness was in the heart of Satan when he rebelled. Selfishness was in the heart of Adam and Eve when they fell. And that same selfishness exists in our own hearts as well. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that, that we have a tendency towards selfishness every single day. Even when we're reading the Word and praying and, and, and trying to live out abounding love, we have a problem. And that problem is sin. It's selfishness. And if we leave it unchecked, if we never examine ourselves, if we never ask God, God, am I a selfish person? We're going to be in trouble. I learned a, a new word a few months ago that very interesting word. It, very, it pertains to this uh, text so well, but it's the word mesis. It's like Jesus, but with an M. And you can't find it in the Webster's Dictionary yet. It's in the Urban Dictionary. But it's, it's an interesting little word because you can kind of start picking up. Uh, the first two letters are me, okay? What it means is it's a person who models themselves after Jesus. It's a person that wants to be like Jesus, wants to follow Jesus, but they are so self-centered, their lives actually reflect the opposite of Jesus. That's the problem at the church in Philippi. They've got some saved individuals who are being motivated out of selfishness, and they're very me-centered. I want to tell you, being me-centered is, is the opposite of abounding love. And it leads a person to become their, their own little personal mesis. Okay, you may be in that spot this morning. You may be dealing with selfishness in your marriage, in your family, at your workplace. Okay, you need to recognize that there is a problem. And that the only one that can deal with it is, the, is, is God Almighty. We need to realize that we have that tendency. Realizing it is really part of the solution. Understanding it is part of the solution. Now let's look at and see what that solution is. 
We know from last week, in order to stay on the love path, we have to be a sincere, discerning person, reading the Word, praying, uh, having others in our lives that keep us accountable. Paul gave us an example of his own life. But Paul is really going to get down deep today. And he's going to show us the ultimate example for staying on that love path, for staying in that abounding love. Look at verse 3. It says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Okay? So he gives us the key. He gives us the simple answer. And Paul does this so many times. He gives us a simple answer, and then he leads us into a more complex answer. And right here, he's given us the simple answer. He's saying, you need humility. Do not be motivated out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Humility is, is again, one of those fruits of righteousness. It works hand in hand with love. And we need that. So... What does humility mean? Humility means lowliness of mind. The way that I like to think about it is, is that it's seeing ourselves for who we really are. We are seeing ourselves with corrective vision. That corrective vision comes through the Word and through the Holy Spirit. We see ourselves for who we really are. We need to see ourselves in that light. And then Paul gives us two descriptions of what humility should look like in a very basic way. He says, first, that we should consider others more important than yourself. So a characteristic or or a simple definition of, of humility is considering others more important than yourself. And then secondly, you don't just look out for your own interest, but you look out for the interest of others. So what does that look like? Well, simply put, it looks just the opposite of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, I'm always looking to work the angle for me. In humility, I'm always looking for the best uh, outcome for the group or the bigger picture or my family. Okay, you see how it's a different mindset? And you know, it would be real easy again like I said last week, to stop here and just say, hey guys, you need to be more humble. You need to, be, uh, you need to follow these, this definition and you need to write out a list of things um, to do every week to, to be humble. But I want to tell you this, Paul explains these two easy definitions and then he goes into a very deep explanation. He always takes us back to Jesus. That's what I love about Paul. You know, Paul... He could have been very arrogant. He could have been very conceited. But uh, uh, he could have said, hey, just follow me. Just follow my example. We don't even need to use Jesus' example. But he always takes it back to Jesus. And I want to I tell you this morning that, that what we're going to look at in this passage uh, is, is truly the ultimate definition of humility. Paul has given us a very textbook definition, but he's going to expand on that in this passage of Scripture. So he tells us the easy definition, and then he goes on in verse 5 and just blows our minds. He says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. So he says, Humility is the key, but it's a certain type of humility. 
Okay? It's a humility like Jesus Christ. He says, make your own attitude like Jesus. Wow, that's huge. When you sit back and you think about that, it's, it, it almost seems impossible. How do I make my attitude like Jesus? We know that Jesus was humble. He was a man of humility. He was a man of love. He was a man that abounded in love. We serve a God that abounds in love. Paul's saying, you've got to be just like Jesus. So the solution for us this morning, if we want to let love abound in our life, we've got to be like Jesus. We have to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So what kind of humility, what kind of attitude did Jesus have? We're going to learn four things about Jesus' humility. We're going to go through these fairly quick. These four things teach us a lot about the level of Jesus' humility. And it it also teaches us the level that God is actually calling us to. Because He isn't calling us to a shallow humility. He is calling us to a very deep, abounding love. First thing about Jesus' humility is, is that the text tells us that Jesus did not use His deity for His own advantage. Look at verse 6. It says that Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for His own advantage. Your translation might say, uh, He did not consider equality with God as something... um, trying to think of the other translation. Something to be uh, attained or grasped. Um, I like this translation a lot better. I think it's really true to the text. But really what it means here is, what what this text is telling us, is it's telling us, first of all, that Jesus was God. Okay, He was fully God. He existed in the form of God. He wasn't 50% God, 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. That is the miracle of Jesus. He wasn't 50-50. He wasn't part. He was fully God. But I want you to think about this. He was fully God. While he walked here on earth. But he didn't use the advantages of being God here on earth. Now we know that Jesus did some amazing things. He did miracles. But as it pertained to his person. He didn't use his deity to get out of hard situations. That's amazing. That's how humble Jesus was. And that is the humility that we are called to today. He didn't manipulate circumstances to work things out for him. He simply followed God and what God told him to. And we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays. He said, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, that would be nice. But not as I will, but as you will. You see Jesus' humanity in the garden. But you still see His humility in His obedience to the Father. What in the world? How do we do we do that in our life? We're not even gods. you realize that? This was God who didn't use all the, the privileges of being God while He was here. 
He didn't try to get out of hard things. That should tell you something about us. We're not even in that position. How much more should we embrace the will of God in our lives? You know, Jesus knew that always getting what you want and always taking the easy route and always being able to use your deity didn't bring the greatest joy. Do you realize it was the eternal plan of God to save men and women for His glory? And the only way that that could take place is if Jesus laid down His life. That wasn't getting to use everything to your advantage. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy laid before Him endured the cross and despised its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus realized that always getting what you want isn't what it's about. It's about being obedient to the Father. And He saw the cross as joy. He saw the cross as a love gesture to you and I. And He gladly went there for us. So we see that Jesus, not very selfish, there's no selfishness there. You know, a lot of times as men, we think that God is selfish. Well, God's God, He can do whatever He wants. Okay, that's not what God does. God is holy and humble. And God doesn't use everything to His advantage all the time. Or we would be dead. It's a beautiful picture of humility. How that works out in our life, I'm not totally sure, guys. But I know that Paul says, have the, have the mind of Christ. Well, the mind of Christ did not use, the attitude of Christ did not use His deity to His own advantage. Second thing about Christ's humility... You know, he was God, but he actually, in his humility, lowered himself to subhuman standards. What it says in verse 7, it says, instead, instead of being God and using all the privileges that, that come with being God, instead of that, he emptied himself. Again, that doesn't mean he emptied himself of all of his attributes. He was fully God, okay? But he emptied himself and he assumed the form of a slave. Your translation may say servant. That's a nice, that's a nice translation. It may say bondservant. That's a little more graphic. And then when, you, when your translation says slave, that's very graphic. So which is it? Is it a bondservant? Is it a servant? Is it a slave? Well, I want to tell you this. If you look at Jesus' life, and you look at the way that he was treated by man, you will see that man treated him in a subhuman way. He came to save us. He came to love us. And we said he was possessed by the devil. We said he was crazy. We said he was, he was a nut. We questioned his miracles. And ultimately we beat him and we spit on him. We took a swing at him. We put him on a cross. Sounds a lot like a slave to me. 
You know, Jesus didn't use his deity to his advantage. He didn't even use his humanity to his advantage. Jesus was a man just like each and every one of us. He assumed a subhuman form. He he assumed the form of a slave. And he truly came to serve. Listen to what Isaiah says about Jesus. He says he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering and acquainted with grief. He was like someone people turn away from. We despised Him and we did not value Him. You know, in our life, we are called to have the same attitude as Christ. I want to tell you, living in the United States, it's all about pride. It's all about arrogance. It's all about who's the biggest, who's the best. I want to tell you this, I love the state of Texas. I'm born and raised here, and I love the United States of America. But Jesus did not walk around like many people that I know. He didn't walk around with pride and arrogance. He didn't walk out with his chest stuck out. He assumed a subhuman standard. And he came to to wash the feet of men He came to get in the trenches. He came to be called a a liar. And ultimately he came to go to the cross. That's humility. How does that look like in our own life? I don't know. (laughs) Well, you're the preacher. You're supposed to know. You're supposed to have the right points. I don't know, folks. I know what the text says. It says we're supposed to have the same attitude as that of Christ. But I don't totally know how that looks like in my life. But I know that it doesn't look a lot like my life every day. And so Jesus has to be our standard. And we have to hold Him up like we held ourselves up last week. We have to hold Him up and, and compare our life with His. And if we want to be like Him... He is faithful to help us carry that out. We've got to start praying, God, give us this attitude of Christ. We've got to dig into the scriptures so that we can see exactly what he was like. Third thing about Christ's humility is that he carried this humility out to completion. It says in verse 8 that he humbled himself and became obedient To the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, there wasn't just a a time period where Jesus went through a humility stage. But He carried that out for His entire life. No matter what the circumstance was, Jesus was going to respond in humility. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, If anyone wants to come with me, or your translation may say, come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See that first part? He said, deny yourself. Jesus was telling people, if you want to be like me, you've got to do what I did, and I denied myself. Didn't use my deity. 
to my advantage in any circumstance. I didn't use my humanity. I, I took on a subhuman form. And I was willing to carry that out to completion. I was willing to go to the cross. If you want to come after him, you've got to do the same thing. Again, I ask myself, what does that look like in my life? Sometimes I think we see what things look like by looking at what they don't look like. Kind of look at it in in a reverse order. And I want to tell you a personal story. In November, I started having some weird pains in my body. And and, uh, in January, I was diagnosed with a form of rheumatoid arthritis. And... uh, uh, haven't, haven't gone to a rheumatologist yet because uh, there are some things that I've done that have that have helped the pain. But in December, I was really, really struggling. Uh, I had pain in my shoulders, hands, knee, feet, swollen, everything painful. <clears throat> and uh, I have a very demanding job, and and I, I was really getting to a breaking point mentally. And. Uh, and I wanted to give up, but yet I'm a Christian, okay? What, 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 what is a Christian supposed to do in that negative circumstance? And so I, I was reading through the Scriptures, and I was reading through Philippians, and, and you know, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and I, I was convinced that, that my life was not very long. And I began to pray, God... <laughs> You know, I, I want to go out. I want, and in fact, I'm ready to go now. Okay, that's how discouraged I was. I was just ready to go now. God, just take me out. I was assuming I was going to go to the doctor. He was going to give me a bunch of bad news. And uh, you're in the middle of that whole thing. I, I really felt like I was righteous. Okay, I really did. I was like, oh yeah, look at me, man. Look at my faith. It's awesome. I'm willing to die for Christ, and I really am. And I, and you know what? I was, I, I made myself believe that. But as I kept reading God's word, He kept showing me really how selfish that was. You know what? I was only thinking about my own discomfort. I was only thinking about my own pains, and I just wanted out. Okay, I didn't want to play the game anymore. God had brought me to a point in my life where I was just, I was ready to throw in the towel. I did not think about my calling to my family. I did not think about my calling to my church. I did not think about my calling to humanity. One Sunday morning, God, through the preaching of of His Word, uh, really brought me to a a breaking point. And... uh, He just showed me that Christ finished the race. And He finished it well. And He didn't complain in the negative circumstances. He stayed focused on God. And I realized that I was not focused on God. I was focused on my circumstance. And God hit me with this. If you don't get anything out of this sermon today, get this. The worst day of Jesus Christ's life. He loved me the best. On the worst day of his life. He kept trudging along. And he did that for me. He 
did that for you. And when I look at that, that gives me encouragement. It gives me encouragement that I can actually finish the race. And that I can walk through this life in a very humble way. I can abound in love like Christ abounded in love. Because He did that for me. We've got to follow that same example. Fourth thing about Christ's humility is that true humility brings true exaltation. You remember those detractors that we talked about? What do they want? They want praise. They want adoration. They want to work situations to, 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 to give them the advantage or to give them the praise. God has a different track. He says, walk in humility and you'll be exalted. And, and the example is Jesus Christ. It says, for this reason. I want you to go back a couple of verses. For this reason. For the reason of Christ's humility. He displayed it. He didn't use His deity to His own advantage. He didn't use His humanity. He, he lowered Himself to a subhuman standard. He carried it out to completion every single day, loving, even in His worst circumstances. For this reason, God highly exalted God is in the business of exalting people that are like Him. That follow after His example. His example is Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, who He gave to us to be our living example. We're to have that mind. And it says that because of His humility, that God gave Him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of the, the of kind of the final judgment. Everyone's there, believer, unbeliever. And God the Father is going to exalt Christ high above everything else. You know what that is? That's Jesus. That's God the Father holding up Jesus like that clay pot that we were talking about last week. That's Him holding that up and saying, look, there is no fractures in this. He, has, he is complete. He has done everything that I've said. He's been obedient to me. And every person will see that. But not everyone will have experienced that. There's two groups of people here. There's actually three. There's some angelic, uh, there's some angelic bodies here. But as far as humans go, there's really just two kinds. There's ones that have attempted to follow that, and and, and have tried their whole life to follow after Christ. They're, they are there, and they're exalting Jesus. They're exalting Jesus out of obedience. There's another group there that are not exalting Jesus out of obedience. They're unbelievers. Never sought after Christ. But you know what? They're going to exalt Him because they're going to see that He was the true way. You know, we're in this text. We're in this text of Scripture. When Christ is exalted, Romans chapter 8 says that because of Christ's sacrifice, we are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs. And if we're heirs, we're co-heirs with Christ and co-heirs with God. Seeing that we suffer with Him, 
so that we might be glorified with Him. You see, this humility doesn't sound that appealing. Lowering yourself to subhuman standards, serving others, living a life, denying the self. Scripture says it's got a lot of fruit. It's got a lot of reward. We'll be exalted. We'll be glorified with Him. That's, That's where I want to experience exaltation. I don't want to experience it here on this earth. I want to experience it by the hand of God. So this is the key to conquering selfishness. It's the key to abounding love. It's the key to unity. It's the key to joy. Okay? It's the key to real glory. Remember I told you earlier that this is a song. This little passage here is a song. We've got to meditate on it. We've got to sing it. It's got to be our life song. We've got to pray that God will grow this attitude in our life. Let's pray. Lord, we just... We are humbled at your humility. We are humbled at your plan. Your plan was not to come and and do exactly what you wanted. Your plan was to save people who could not save themselves. Your plan was perfect. Father, so many times we want the perfect plan. But we think that the perfect plan involves getting exactly what we want. We think that the perfect plan involves us working things out to our advantage. Father, the plan that you have for every believer is that they would follow after Christ. They would follow his example of humility. They would follow his example of love. And that out of that obedience, you would exalt us and bless us beyond all measure. Father, we have faith today that you can do this in us. Father, I pray for people in here that that don't even know you. Father, I pray that in that final judgment that they will be there out of obedience and not out of disobedience. Father, I pray for those that are struggling in affliction today. I pray, Father, that they could put on Jesus Christ, put on the clothes of Jesus and be able to walk through that trial in a joyful, loving way. Father, I pray that you would just move in us. In Jesus' name, amen.